There's a relatively new literary niche called Gritlit, and one of its emerging voices is Hendersonville author Megan Lucas. Her newest collection of stories is titled Here in the Dark. Much like her earlier work, these stories center Appalachian women of simple means and complicated lives. I'm just really tired of seeing Appalachian people represented in media by people who don't live here. That we all drink moonshine and handle snakes really drives me crazy. <laughs> and so I, I want a much more realistic perspective. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook, a daily podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. My guest today is Megan Lucas. We talk about her drive to portray women of this region with truth, dignity, and complexity. Megan also talks about how her own traumas play into her writing and how she maintains relationships with family members who aren't thrilled with some of her language and subject matter. If you've spent any time on Tinder or Bumble, you know this scenario. You're on a blind date and it goes horribly wrong. I mean, horribly in a way you just can't get out of. That's the premise of Some Notes on Dating During Outbreak, a new stage play from Asheville playwright Travis Lowe premiering through the Sublime Theater. It's got a fancy restaurant, two hopeful people, and an entrapment by quarantine. What more could you ask for? Some Notes on Dating During Outbreak opens July 13th and runs nine performances at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and information, go to thesublimetheater.org. Megan Lucas grew from blogging to writing short stories to then having her first published novel. I began this conversation by asking how this new collection of short stories took shape. It's pretty obvious I'm a hot mess, but I think that most writers who work both in short form and short stories and in novels work on them at the same time. Some of the stories in this collection are from before Songbirds and Stray Dogs came out, and some of them were written during the marketing process of that book or while I was on tour or while I was doing residencies. Some of them were written while I was writing a second novel that my agent has, and some of them are more modern or more recent, I suppose. So I'm always chasing the most sexy idea, and so sometimes that means putting down the novel for a little bit and picking up a short story. Do you know going into something whether it's destined to be a short story or a novel? I think that you can tell with the meat of the idea and how complicated it is. That said, I started what I thought was a novel, and it turns out that it was a short story because it was really difficult to write. And so I decided that I needed to put it down. Talk about that a little more. Uh, What happened in the writing of this? What did you come up against that forced you to pivot from what you had intended? Sure. It's a short story, or it was going to be a novel that was going to be the backstory of a character from Songbirds and Stray Dogs. Her name is Ruby, and when we meet her in my first novel, she's in her 60s. And the story takes place 40 years before, and, and it really is about how difficult it is to be a mom knowing what the world is like for girls. And the idea of what it's like both to have a mom who has depression and to be a girl who's being raised in a world that is really not for girls. And so I I started down that path and she had a very difficult childhood and she loses her mother. and, And it just, it brought up a lot of feelings 
And I wasn't ready, I think, to explore them in a novel format. Because with a novel, not only does it take years to write and years to revise, but then also you're, you're trying to sell it for six months to a year, and then two years later it comes out, and then you're marketing it for years. And so that's some pretty heavy stuff to be carrying for, for years and years. Is that something that, that was weighing on you, all of that, when you're in the writing process and you're doing this audit? Were you thinking, oh gosh, not only do I, if I'm going to pursue this, I'm mining the depths of something that is emotionally difficult, but then I'm going to have to live in this story through press, tours, whatever, for a couple of years at least. All of that was on your mind through this? Absolutely. It's interesting. I think now that I'm starting to, I've been doing this for almost 10 years now. And when you first start writing, I don't think you're thinking about an audience at all. You're not thinking about who's going to read it. You're not thinking about the kinds of questions you're going to get in interviews. You're not going to, you're not thinking about what you're going to be talking about in the future. You're just writing stories you want to write. And all of my stories are a little bit hard. I'm a glutton for punishment that way, I guess. I like to discuss difficult things, but sometimes they're easier because you're angry and sometimes it's harder because you're sad. And, and so I knew if that story about Ruby, which actually was just published in Rock in a Hard Place magazine, it's called The Stillness at the Bottom. I knew if that story was going to be a novel, that it was going to be my whole life for five to six years. So when you truncate that and you decide you're not going to do that, I would imagine it'd be difficult to pare back the story in a way. If you have that in your head and you know what you want to accomplish, what you want to communicate to willingly on your own be this sort of ruthless editor of that. Talk about the challenge of that. It's a long, short story. It is, I think, 6,000 words, and so it, it pushes that way. But it's also really tight. I like to write really condensed, I think. And so it forced me when I decided that it wasn't actually, I had about 20,000 words and it wasn't going to be a novel. It needed to be a short story. I did a lot of cutting. And I think that's a good exercise as a writer to really force yourself to revise the story to what the real meat is. And it forces you to get rid of some of the extra stuff that was maybe me just thinking I was a little too clever. You just touched on something, you thinking you were a little too clever. I imagine, I would think that would be one thing you're keeping a sharp eye for. But then when you're writing in long form, again, longer form than the shorts, than a 6,000 word story, when you're looking at a novel, why would you want to abandon or surrender that kind of editing eye? You would think once you've honed that and to the betterment of a story, why do you have to sacrifice that as a novelist? I don't think you have to sacrifice it because I think we are wonderful composters, right? So Ruby had a best friend named Della and Ruby was in love with her. And Della had this whole backstory involving polio and I was really excited about it. And so she doesn't exist in the short story, but that doesn't mean that Della won't ever get her own story. Right. Okay. So you can you just save them in a little cemetery or compost file and come back to them later. So this collection, are these stories that encompass a broad span of time of character or topics that you've been pulling on for a while? Or is this a pandemic era book? Oh, gosh. No, this this includes the first story I ever published in 2016, up until the latest that I had done once I had sold the book. So about 2022. And it's not every story that I published or wrote during that time. I really love what Shotgun Honey, my publisher, is doing. They're doing lots of incredible 
crime work, but specifically Appalachian crime. And so I knew if I wanted to work with them, I had to have a really tight collection that was very focused on crime stories. And with, of course, my like lit fix spin and some of the stories have a horror bent, but it is very narrow to all female protagonists and, and Appalachian and crime. Talk about the Appalachian focus. You mentioned the publisher that, that comes from that vantage. I know you have come from that vantage throughout your writing. Is what you're looking to say about this region the same now as it was when you were first diving in as a writer? I think so. I think that I'm just really tired of seeing Appalachian people represented in media by people who don't live here that we all drink moonshine and handle snakes really drives me crazy. <laughs> and so I, I want a much more realistic perspective, I think. I also want people who don't live here to be aware that really sophisticated, really excellent writing is coming out of this region. I have a literary journal that I edit. It's called Reckon Review. And we do all rural writers, not just Appalachian writers, but rural writers, and to debate that idea that only good writing is coming out of New York or major centers. When you're giving yourself that task of blowing through the stereotypes of voice and intelligence and story that comes from Appalachia, are you being deliberate in saying, I can't touch X subject matter because that furthers a stereotype? The one story you have in your book about, I remember it taking place in a trailer, but it's this woman who finds gold nuggets in these... Pig in the carcass. Pig in the carcass <laughs> in these dead animals. Or, and it's a mystery how these what these gold nuggets, how they even got there are. They belong to a man who's in this story. Mm -hmm. You can see that taking place here, but when you're telling stories like that, do you tell yourself, I can't tell certain things in a certain way because it just furthers the stereotype? I'm not worried about that. In that story, you're right. The woman is an addict and she lives in a trailer, which could be a stereotype. But I think when people read that story, they also realize what an incredible mother she is and how hard she's trying and how the whole world has been stacked against her. But she is just so resilient and purposeful. And I think that breaks the stereotype, or at least twists it, where someone from the outside might think that they're getting what they think they're getting, but they keep reading, and then they discover that they learned something, maybe. Is that unique in this book? Are there other stories that illustrate that as well, that you're taking something that is associated with a plight of people in this region and putting a different, shining a different light for, or at least from a different angle on it? I think so. I hope so. The first story in the collection, Voluntary Action, is the story of a police officer who has a woman die in, in her custody because she ate meth. And that's actually a story I took from the news here in Asheville. And I think that you can start reading it and you can start thinking about just the incredible addiction that we're facing here in this region, as well as there's stereotypes about police officers and there's stereotypes about female police officers. And my hope is in all of these stories that the characters are deep enough that we come to realize that people are different that it, nobody can just be labeled as a stereotype, that we all are round enough and good enough and bad enough together that it, it makes us interesting, but also nobody is a stereotype. Talk about embodying the voices of people here, specifically where you're using quotes and deliberately putting voice in story. Where are you gathering your voices from? 
I like to think that I'm a good listener and I'm observant, eavesdropper perhaps. I, I just, I listen wherever I go. I love accent. I can't re- replicate them with my own voice to save my life. But on paper, I think they come through. And I fi- always find it interesting when I do a reading and I read my own stories. I have a much thicker Southern accent by the end of the story than I started with. The grocery store, my kids go to public school. I used to teach at AB Tech. I had lots of students who had more native accents. You began our conversation by talking about you're a hot mess. How does that manifest in your writing? I think I'm obsessed with reality. In our last meeting, we talked a lot about how I started writing because I was trying to survive postpartum depression. And so I've always been trying to deal with real feelings on paper. And so I don't think I'm afraid of showing not only not so flattering parts of myself, but also maybe not so flattering parts of other people, because I think that's what makes us enduring and real. I can't get over how often when I share this story in a room full of people, how often people just want to talk about mental health issues with me at the end. They don't want to talk about my story. They want to talk about how important it was to them to feel heard that they weren't alone and that kind of stuff. That they feel heard in your work. Yeah, they feel heard in my work because they know that I'm coming from somewhere that they're coming from too. Have some of the traumas that you're writing about now, are they different than what you were writing about five years ago? Absolutely. My children are older now, and so I'm much more concerned about the things that our society is doing, the lack of rights for my daughter and her body and their friends who are LGBTQ. And I think I'm angrier maybe than I was five years ago. (laughs) Yeah, five years ago, I was maybe more sad. And now I'm more angry. There's a visual artist I know. She's a painter named Margaret Curtis. She's fantastic. But she takes very specific things that she's angry about and puts them in these narrative paintings. I'm wondering if you do the same in your literature and your writing that you're finding a backdoor way to make commentary about the things you're angry about. I think so. I don't think that it's quite as literal or intentional as your painter friend, and I wish it was. Because, you know, with a story, you're always chasing the plot a little bit, right? You make a character that you fall in love with or you get obsessed with or there's some sort of like little tickle of an idea and then you build a story out of it. But then you get to to see, especially in re- revision, all of the areas where you can layer in perspectives. And, and so that's, I guess, what I'm trying to do. Is there an art to doing that that continues to grow for you? I'm always fighting preachy, right? Because nobody wants to read that. So it, it's always about subtlety and about letting the reader come to their own conclusion. But it's also always about, it it all needs to be in the service of the story. So it has to build something in the story. It has to strengthen the story. And I think I read my own work sometimes and discover that I am preaching to the one person choir that I'm just, I'm a little too clever, or I think that it's going to bore someone else. You also, I think, you want to reach across the aisle, for lack of a better way to say that. And the best way to engage with people who maybe don't agree with you politically or culturally is to make it human. And so that's what I'm always trying to do.
Getting word out about your big event is tricky and challenging. You can boost a post on social media, but gaming the algorithm is guesswork. Broadcast and print outlets totally exaggerate their numbers, and there's no way to verify their audience. But I can tell you exactly the number of people listening to The Overlook and where they're based. Most important, my audience is actively listening. Look, that's you right now paying attention. And you can promote your fundraiser or arts event to other smart dialed-in Asheville people for as little as $40 an episode. Find out more by going to podavl.com slash advertise. Early on when we first met, you had worked through or were dealing with the postpartum depression with that body of work. Are you completely through that? And do you find that writing and working on these fictional stories helps you work through real um, emotions and traumas? Or if you're not working through them, is it a way to distract you from them? I do think that I have recovered from postpartum depression. My children are in school now and I am able to exercise a lot more independence than I had when I first started writing that book. And I definitely think that I'm able to figure out the world a little bit better through my writing. I think it was Flannery O'Connor who talked about like not knowing how she felt until she saw what she wrote. And I very much feel that way, that it's a lot of self-discovery and wandering around in the dark, figuring it out. Is it something that you carry with you from piece to piece? Is it not one story as a whole, I'm taking this on, or I'm working through this in this story? Is it a continuum through all of your writing? I can definitely see, and you could probably see too when you're reading the collection, that there are things that I'm obsessed with and am still working on. The idea of motherhood, the idea of bringing children, specifically girl children, into a world that does not value them the way that they should be valued. Addiction, it plays a role in so much, not only because of where we live, but because of what I've lived through. There's also mental health stuff going on. One of the stories in the collection was inspired because my cousin took his own life. And so I wrote a story to work through that. When that happens, with that story specifically, do you talk to your family about it, that that's what you're doing in this story? No. <laughs> I think that will be a surprise to them. How has your family reacted to your writing when it is so personal? It's fictional, but it's very personal and personally derived. So half of my family is Canadian, so they will never tell you that they are not happy with what you're doing. <laughs> right, that's just the culture. That's just the culture. Right. My my family is very conservative Christian, and so I have heard a little bit about how much cussing I do, and they're not always in love with how people of faith are portrayed in my stories. But I, in general, my family has been very supportive. Talk about that, how you portray people of faith, because obviously you grew up in it, and it is a an unabashed commentary in a sense born from your own lived experience and observe and then observational experience talk about those conversations with your family when they're commenting on your work about that what do you tell them oh boy i guess i experienced what i feel like is a lot of hypocrisy in the church as a young person and and so i left and i remain unconvinced to return and you tell them that, like, and do they try to convince you to return? Oh, no. My, my parents 
have moved to Hendersonville when my daughter was born, and they know that I don't attend church and my children don't attend church. And they occasionally invite us to go with them, but no, nobody's pushy. It's one thing to have these differences with your family, and they're, they don't have to see evidence of it. But your writing, it gets out there, it's public, and they do see evidence, and it probably articulates something to them that they don't even hear in discussions with you that, or they're reading into it. So it might be a continual thorn. I w- would imagine, but it's also fiction. So I think you can guess what of it is me and what of it is the character. But it's all commentary. But it's all commentary, exactly. But they buy books and they support me and they come to readings and maybe they love me more than I annoy them. Perhaps. <laughs> but that's validating, isn't it? Yeah, it is. They're wonderful. So you mentioned you're working on a new novel, or is it done? My agent has a novel. It's called Soft Animals. And I am working on a third, and it's called Who's Gonna Miss You? Okay. Do you want to talk about those books at all? Soft Animals, I started writing in 2018 after I had sold Songbirds and Stray Dogs. And it's the story of three Southern women who are all battling some sort of cultural stereotype. One of the women has a really significant birthmark on her face. And so she has to deal with a lot of like beauty type stereotypes. Her mother is an addict and her grandmother isn't the perfect person that she portrays herself to be, the perfect Southern Belle. And so they're all fighting against stereotypes with under the banner of some dust-ups at the local church. Do you find that you're conscious of not going over old territory that you've already done? Because they're all Appalachian settings. They're all women, strong women, Mm -hmm. who represent different angles, either of your own experience or maybe an archetype you want to put out there. I don't want to be boring. I don't want to bore the reader, but I don't want to bore myself I would think it'd be more about yourself, because unless you have devoted readers who would, and I'm sure you do at this point, but who would know everything, oh, this character reminds me of this. But when you're dealing in a combination of novel and short story, you said you've written about 50 short stories. How do you keep that fresh? I think that storytelling gives us so many tools where you can tell stories about women from Appalachia, but you can use all of history. Some of my stories take place in the 20s and some are take place in the future. I I love to play with genre. Some of my short stories are more literary fiction, some are more crime, some are horror adjacent, like the one we were talking about, Picking the Carcass. I've recently discovered that folk horror is fun, playing with the stereotypes and expectations of readers based on myth is really interesting. Again, Picking the Carcass, like we talked about, had some sort of plays on fairy tales a little bit. I just wrote a story that was accepted by the the Women of Appalachia Project that's a twist on a cozy mystery, the uh, no blood on the stage feel. Uh And so it's just, I think it's fun to just keep playing. We all know that writers who fall into a formula, and I think that's really boring. And I know that works for them, and they make a lot of money, and I don't, but I don't want to be bored. I'm really writing to entertain myself. What do you want to approach in your writing that you haven't done yet? Oh, my new novel that I'm working on, Who's Gonna Miss You, takes place here in Henderson County, where we have a really large immigrant population. And I'm an immigrant myself, and that storyline has a really heavy immigration plotline that I'm really excited about. It also has some racism 
that I've never really dealt with before, but Henderson County has a really large Hispanic population, and so I'm excited to to dig into that a little bit. I'm also going to dig a little bit into different what people might consider sexual deviancy, which I think is fun. And so there's some new research for me to do, but also some new territory. But I think that it all comes together with the whole sort of strong Appalachian women, crimey type focus. And so I'm hoping that my former readers will follow me into that new land. It's new enough that you wonder, wow, this is going to be a real leap for my reader with me. Yes. And that's my, actually, that's my fear with this collection. Songbirds and Stray Dogs is so literary fiction. And even this the North Carolina Center for the Book picked it to represent literary fiction last year for the Root One Reads program. And these new stories are, they're, they bend literary, but they're very crimey. And so I, I also wonder, like, will that same reader follow me? And so I'm hoping that if they've read any of my short stories over the last 10 years, that that won't be a surprise. Is there anything I haven't asked you about your process for the works in this book or that you're working on now that you think would be intriguing for people to know? The biggest question I get from students is about the timeline. How long does all of this take? Especially when I was teaching at AB Tech, I taught a lot of continuing ed. And I always found it fascinating that writing is one of those things where because we can write an email or some really great ad copy, we assume we can write a story. And no other art assumes that, right? Nobody walks into their first class, watercolor 101 or learning Spanish or whatever, and thinks that they're going to walk out that first day with a masterpiece. But my writing students all do. I think photography might be. Okay. Yes. Photography. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. They're assuming that they're going to learn everything they need to know in that first class. And really, this is such a process. And there are so many words that I've written that I've never published, but I've learned from. And it's such a journey. And it's it's funny to hear you talk about how prolific I am because I really don't feel that way. Like I feel like, oh, it's been four years since my last book. But it takes a long time to write a good story. And then it takes a long time to revise that good story. And it takes a long time to sell that good story. And then by the time y'all are reading them, it's been a long time for me. Our new First Look newsletter gives you just a handful of daily headlines from around the local media landscape to get you on your morning. We also have a weekly newsletter devoted to all things The Overlook that hits you every Friday. Both are free and available at podavl.com newsletter. And please support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theoverlookpodcast. I want to thank my guest today, author Megan Lucas. You can find her in a talk with fellow local author Nathan Ballingrud on August 8th at Malaprops Books. Today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are available every Monday through Thursday morning. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.